This is Macro Horizons, episode 93, Spending Daylight, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 2nd. Sometimes all one needs to remember is to fall back. Or is that spring forward? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed in the Treasury market was an interesting one, primarily because we saw a breakdown of one of the traditional relationships in risk assets versus U.S. rates. Specifically, there were several days in which the equity market was off rather dramatically, and we didn't see the traditional follow-through of a flight to quality which would contain Treasury rates. In fact, we saw 10-year yields get as high as 84 basis points before month-end considerations and the obvious uncertainty associated with the upcoming elections. Now, our broader trading bias hasn't changed, and if anything, this upward pressure on rates in the longer end of the curve has reinforced the notion that in the wake of the election itself, once the results are known, presumably without too much of a legal challenge, that the path will be cleared for yields to drift higher into the end of the year. That will be accompanied by an increase in optimism for the year ahead, as well as the assumption that all of the stimulus that's currently in the system from the fiscal and monetary policy side will continue to support the inflation complex as well. It's notable that the most recent GDP figures not only came in better than expected, but saw a significant increase in goods consumption. Service consumption did gain, but it's the goods aspect that we find the most fascinating. If we find ourselves in a situation where the fourth quarter does see the return of lockdowns, the fact that many frontline service sector establishments haven't really come back online suggests that lockdowns will not be as impactful during the fourth quarter if they become a reality. The healthcare system and policymakers have learned a great deal about the coronavirus over the course of the last several months. And in that process, pandemic protocols have been refined. So imagining a situation where additional lockdowns are warranted, the assumption is that they will be targeted and not as universal as they were at the beginning of the pandemic. So if that's the case, the economic fallout will be limited compared to what we saw in the second quarter of 2020. And it's also important to keep in mind that the third quarter GDP print showed that the real economy is only 3.5% smaller than it was during the fourth quarter of 2019. Said differently, while we took a significant hit at the beginning of the pandemic, the rebound has been impressive by anyone's count. Well, another month of the pandemic come and gone. 
And still, 10-year yields are in the range that they've been in for quite some time. Although, with the caveat that we've seen the upper bound of the range redefined somewhat to 87 basis points, which will be a key level in the week ahead as we contemplate the election as well as the October NFP numbers. Uh, And let us not forget the Fed is meeting, although I think it's pretty safe to say that no one is expecting any monetary policy action in the very near term. The proximity to the elections being the obvious hindrance, and for the Fed's part at least, the longer that they can avoid having to do more, the better that will ultimately be, given just the baseline diminishing impact from the incremental moves that they have left in their proverbial toolbox. So this does set the stage for what is probably going to be one of the most exciting weeks outside of the pandemic for 2020. And that's the election. We've spoken a lot over the course of the last several weeks about potential outcomes and how that will play through to the treasury market. But just by way of a quick recap, the biggest issue is that we need to have as a market a quick resolution to the uncertainty surrounding the election outcome. So if we know within the first 48 hours, that's going to be a net positive for risk assets back to trading some of the baseline fundamentals, given where we are in the pandemic, that probably takes the form of case counts over economic data. But nonetheless, a shift away from the political uncertainty will be a net positive. On the flip side, if it's a heavily contested election outcome with a reasonable chance of spending weeks in the courts, I think that's going to inhibit any potential selling pressure that we see further out the treasury curve and put a cap on how far rates can back up, as well as how far one might expect risk assets to perform into the end of the year. Ian, one of the conversations I've had with clients that seems to be popping up more and more is the possibility of a fiscal stimulus after the election, but before inauguration. I think at this point, it's fair to say we didn't get the stimulus before the election. So now the question is, while the baseline assumption for most is there will be another stimulus program, are we talking about waiting until February or could this be a November, December problem? I think it comes down to the earlier point, which is, do we know who won? If we know the composition of Congress and we know who will be in the White House, I think that clears the way for a deal sooner rather than later. And presumably, if it is a blue sweep, that $2 trillion mark starts to become particularly relevant as we consider what to expect from D.C., If the political uncertainty persists, it's not as if there's any political gain to be had in terms of voting by pushing a deal through sooner rather than later. So I would expect that in that situation, it ends up being a long, drawn-out process, and it's post-inauguration. And I think one nuance you alluded to there is really important, that it's not just who takes the White House that's the point of political uncertainty with regards to a lame duck stimulus. It also is Congress. So not only would we have to know whether it's Trump or Biden, we'd also have to know the outcomes of the myriad of different Senate races. That adds not only another point of uncertainty, but another dimension whereby the process could get dragged out. And none of which is good for the longer term prospects of the recovery, because it takes longer for 
the next stimulus deal to make it through to the economy, then perhaps some of this strong momentum that we saw emerge in the third quarter ends up struggling as the year comes to an end. I, for one, will be the first to say how surprised I was to see a better than expected real GDP print and growth now just 3.5% off of the Q4 2019 levels. That's not to say that we're out of the proverbial woods. However, as we've watched the breakdown between good spending and service spending, what we see is that consumption of services is still well behind where we were in 2019, whereas spending on goods is beginning to be the definitive outperforming sector. This has near-term ramifications as we consider what a lockdown might mean for the economic outlook. The revival of restrictions on restaurants and frontline service sector establishments will not be as damaging the second time as it was in March and April, if for no other reason than a lot of these firms simply never came back. And if they did come back, they didn't come back at anywhere close to their prior capacity. So shutting restaurants, bars, and entertainment and putting limits on travel don't have the numbers behind them to justify a dimmer outlook comparable to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. That being said, we still need to make some significant progress towards the new normal to justify that backup in longer end rates that we've been anticipating will materialize at the end of the year. And Ian, that line of thinking helps explain why we've seen a comparatively muted reaction in, frankly, both stocks and bonds to the reemergence of formal lockdowns in Europe. Obviously, last week, the concerning pickup in cases in Germany and France specifically brought the topic of nationwide lockdowns back into the conversation. So the fact that we've now seen nationwide lockdowns in France and Germany, albeit at differing scales, but lockdowns nonetheless up until December 1st, really increases the odds that we'll see maybe not a nationwide lockdown, but a pickup in restrictions domestically. But exactly as you point out, Given where the rebound in activity has been focused, that doesn't necessarily make a correction akin to what we saw in March a foregone conclusion. And let us not forget the outright level of rates is much different than it was at the beginning of the year. And so that's going to have a supportive impact for the outlook, as will all the fiscal and monetary policy stimulus already in the system. And on that topic, while the market's attention will likely be elsewhere on Wednesday morning, we do get the November refunding announcement and an update about how the Treasury Department is thinking about issuance going forward. Now, naturally, the elephant in the room is what the details of the next fiscal stimulus will be. But now the consensus seems to be coalescing around that $2 trillion figure. Any new details on the Treasury Department's plan for borrowing going forward will help frame expectations for auctions, if nothing else. In particular, I would flag the potential for increases to TIPS auctions, just given what the refunding documents released a few weeks ago suggested. It's also important to keep in mind that the officials at Treasury who are making the decisions about auction sizes also won't know the outcome of the election on Wednesday morning. They're going to be given the same amount of uncertainty we are. And that'll be helpful context just to remember that even if coupon auction sizes don't increase across the majority next week, that doesn't mean they might not again in the future, depending on how the election goes, depending on how the deficit forecasts adjust, 
and depending on how stimulus assumptions go. So I agree with you that it'll be a big focal point, but because of the timing and sequencing, Treasury will be working with incomplete information and just like the rest of the market, we'll have to make a decision before fully knowing the outcome of the election. Looking beyond the election, one of the focal points that I anticipate next week will be very telling in terms of the market's response function to real economic data will be the October non-farm payroll report. If we find ourselves in a situation where the outcome is contested, but there's an assumption that it goes one direction or another, we could still find ourselves trading off of the fundamentals provided from the BLS. So that will be an important indicator as to the seriousness with which investors are viewing any challenge to the election outcome expectations are for private non-farm payrolls to have increased 685,000 in October, and that will bring the unemployment rate down from 7.9% to 7.7%. And given everything that we have seen so far in 2020, that's a pretty impressive rebound for the employment market. Drifting lower the unemployment rate, continued increases in private payrolls, even in light of all the uncertainties created by the pandemic for the economic outlook domestically and abroad as well. And just as another quick observation on the jobs front, an interesting conversation I had this week centered around something that we've been talking about already, and that is how the potential for future lockdowns or reopening rollbacks may ultimately shake out in the labor market. And the point I'm trying to make here is that even in the event, say, bars and restaurants, in various places around the country are closed again, that doesn't preclude hiring from continuing elsewhere. One of the big themes that we've been talking about is this idea of a K-shaped recovery and that there will continue to be winners and losers of the pandemic. Now, the quote-unquote losers follow pretty intuitively, but at the same time, there have been firms that have performed well over the past several months and presumably have the capacity and desire to bring on new workers. Now, obviously, what remains to be seen is how much that can offset the pain on the other side, but food for thought, if nothing else. I had a fascinating question this week from a client that I will put to you two for your responses. And the question was, in the market at the current moment, when we think about the fixed income space, the equity space, commodity space, what would you say are the two biggest pain trades? Well, in treasury space, the one I would point to is probably the bull flattener. And really the most important data point in that regard is the positional skew that we're seeing in the long end. And what I mean by that is the massive short base that exists further out the curve really would work against any progress toward a meaningful sell-off in the back end. Just given the fact that positioning is so one-sided, profit-taking is going to be an impediment pretty much the whole way up towards higher yields. One other pain trade that comes to mind, if you look at risk assets and especially the equity market, it's become so heavily dependent on a small number of very large technology firms. While that might make sense in a world where there's a pandemic and everything's increasingly going online, were we to see a rethink or reevaluation of how that might play out in future years? That would feed back into equity valuations and could see a pretty sharp reversal of some of the trend. This is also important as we go into the election next week because of some of the policy ramifications, whether it be antitrust lawsuits, shifts to underlying internet regulations, overseas regulatory risks, what have you. 
if there were to be a reset in the thinking there, you could see a pretty sharp repricing lower, tightening of financial conditions, and some of the optimism come out of the equity market and 401k accounts that have otherwise buoyed household sentiment for the past several months. Those are much better answers than the one that I gave, which was the pain trade was having to listen to yet another episode of Macro Horizons. We made it to 93. 90, so good. The week ahead will be defined by the presidential election on two counts. First, depending on the outcome, is there a blue sweep? Who ends up taking the White House? What does the composition of Congress look like for 2021 and beyond? And then the other aspect, which we'll argue is probably more relevant, is how long does it take before the results are official? If the results are heavily contested and it takes weeks or even longer before investors have a clear understanding of the outcome, then that will be a net negative for risk assets. And that's one of the most significant challenges to the notion that we're going to see upward pressure in treasury yields between the middle of November and the end of 2020. Let us not forget, however, that we do get the October non-farm payrolls report on Friday. So envisioning a situation where we do have a known outcome by Wednesday or Thursday, that clears the way for the fundamentals to once again provide meaningful trading direction in the Treasury market. The continued drift lower in initial jobless claims certainly suggests that October will see a reasonable increase in non-farm payrolls. We'll also be watching the unemployment rate, which has managed to move much lower than I think most people, including the Fed, were expecting at this point in the recovery process. Given the collective sense that there's an opportunity for a significant spike in volatility over the course of the coming week, we expect that most investors are to a large extent sidelined and willing to follow any price action that results from the election itself. In the event of a blue sweep, the consensus appears to be there will be an initial downtrade in risk assets, perhaps containing any move in treasuries that is subsequently resolved in a drift higher over the course of the next several weeks. Should there be a surprise either in the White House or the Senate, that would conceptually at least on net be a positive for the business community and presumably help risk assets. It's important in this context to remember that the market doesn't trade the individual as much as they trade the party. So a strong showing for the GOP is presumably going to be associated with a positive pro-business outlook. The Fed has managed to make it this far without needing to do anything additionally on the monetary policy front, and we do have an FOMC meeting in the week ahead. Our expectations are for the Fed to deliver very little this week, and hold off any potential change or additional easing on the monetary policy front until the December meeting, or ideally for the Fed at least, into 2021. The next step is still assumed to be a wham extension of QE purchases, favoring longer dated securities rather than the front end of the curve. However, the Fed would need some sense of urgency on the side of tighter financial conditions to prompt them to make this move, particularly so close to the election. So with the assumption that the Fed will remain on hold for the next meeting or two, 
that really does put the onus on the election outcome, the incoming economic data, and the performance of risk assets in this context to provide incremental trading direction for a U.S. rates market that has proven to be very well contained within a definable range. The key support that we'll be watching is 87 basis points in 10-year yields with a break of that clearing the way for a retest of 95.5 basis points. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with Decision Day 2020 upon us, we're just hoping for a fair contest, not a long contest. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.